Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast. Well, thanks for joining us on the Journal of Biophilic Design. We are publishing our cities-focused edition of the journal this month. So do please to subscribe to our newsletter on our website, journalofbiophilicdesign.com, and follow our podcast series um, for updates. If you're on Spotify, Audible, Amazon, and all your RSS feeds, that would be great. And thank you if you have already. Um, and did you know you can support the podcast, because I do this for free, um, by buying us a coffee. There's a link in the blurb that goes with the podcast. Um, but I think you're going to find this episode really interesting and I'm sure it's going to kick up a debate about how we can build our cities better. I'm really excited to be joined by Edna Odiambo. Um, she's a climate change lawyer. She's based out in Nairobi and um, yeah she was speaking last week um, at the brilliant eighth annual sustainability week conference run by The Economist which runs some brilliant com- uh, conferences so well worth looking up. So Edna thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Vanessa. Lovely. Can you um, start by telling us about yourself, please, um, what you do now? Because I know you do lots of things, but it's all it's all towards the climate, making the climate better, making our world better. Um, and also what got you interested in the sort of, you know, the journey um, and the climate challenges? Again, thank you for this opportunity, Vanessa, to be on this excellent podcast. And I'm looking forward to discussing with you what we can do to build our cities better I'm a climate change lawyer, and I've spent 11 years supporting my clients to communicate sustainability solutions through speaking and knowledge management. So I've had the privilege to work in diverse sectors from finance, technology, transport, nature-based solutions, among others. And I got interested in climate change as an undergraduate law student. That's where my journey began. There was lots of media coverage on one of the worst drought that the Horn of East Africa faced. And I got thinking, what can the law do about this? That was my entry point. And my early careers were spent focusing on policy and regulatory frameworks to address climate change impacts across different sectors. And with time, I was able to find my niche, harnessing my ability as a communicator and my deep connection with nature. And every assignment I found myself taking was gravitating towards facilitating stakeholder engagement, capacity building, synthesizing knowledge, and engagement in the context of climate action. And of course, my story is still being written. Before we launch into the questions, why is nature important to you? What, what sort of has sparked that, that um, passion to protect her? Well, for me, Vanessa, nature is home. Nature makes me feel one with my maker. With nature, I can think, I can rejuvenate. So there's that sort of humility being around nature where it constantly gives to you. And it's just beautiful to be around. Simply put, nature is something that I don't think any man-made thing can replace the benefits that we get from nature. That's that's lovely. Thank you for that. Um Obviously, our recent uh, journal, Biophilic Design, was was focused on cities. And I've worked in Kenya as well, um, worked in a few places, um, which we'll talk about afterwards. (laughs) Um, But actually, I don't know much uh, about what's happening in terms of sort of civic environmental improvements um, in the cities over there. For instance, um, in Nairobi, and I know you have, obviously, 
Um, can you tell us about what the challenges Kenya is facing, maybe the Horn of Africa, um, and what have you discovered? Can you sort of just set the scene for us, please? Well, Kenya is an interesting country, Vanessa, when it comes to matters of climate change. On one hand, we are offering global leadership on matters of clean energy. The latest reports show that more than 85% of electricity generated from our grid is from clean energy sources. That's mm -hmm. hydro, solar, wind, geothermal. So we are doing well on that front. At the same time, there's still millions of Kenyans who lack access to modern energy. So we have people still using dirty fuels, for example, for cooking, for lighting, like firewood and charcoal. And of course, this has obvious implications for health. You know that using dirty cooking fuels increases respiratory illnesses. And of course, we are also cutting down our forests because of using wood fuel. So this has negative environmental and public health impacts. And there's a lot of work going on in that space to ensure that we are deploying clean cooking solutions, for example, to ensure that we are using off-grid solutions to increase energy access to the masses in rural areas. At the same time, Kenya is a water-stressed country. We are 87% we are 87 arid and semi-arid. That means that we have very little arable land, and of course, we don't get much rainfall. So you couple that up with climate change impacts, such mm -hmm. as drought, it means that we have to aggressively tackle matters of food security and water security. So there's also a lot of work going on on that front. And I definitely think that with Kenya, there's a lot of opportunities to build local solutions that meet the needs of the people to build a resilient country. I say that because Kenya is still a favorite when it comes to attracting climate change research funding in Africa. Kenya leads. So that's an opportunity to ensure that we are leading by encouraging localized solutions that meet the needs of the population. Uh, there's some really interesting new technology or new clean tech, isn't there, mm -hmm. as well, you know, where they're sort of capturing um, the, uh, they're putting a little bit of water in and then they're, cap they're putting like a bubble over the top and then the humidity is collecting more water, just things like that. But how you do that on a large scale, I mean, it's okay for localized things. And if you're just doing a little mm. bit, you're just cooking a little bit, but it's not really, um, yeah, you just need a massive bubble all over the whole of Nairobi. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah, and I mean, there's, there's even other more uh, basic solutions for water catchment, like building sand dams. These are low cost. They can be done by the local communities with locally available materials. They take a very short time to establish. So these are some of the things we should also be thinking about, the low hanging fruit, because sometimes technology and the high end things are looked at as sort of the go-to, yet there are just these solutions around us, which if we scale them up, then we are making a difference as fast as we can. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Um, one of your great projects that you've been implementing um, has been to highlight walking and cycling as an alternative to cars um, and obviously for other polluting transport. Um, why do you think we need to bring in more cycling and walking routes in cities and, and how does this help, help climate action? That's a good one, Vanessa. You know, one of the biggest challenges with our transport systems is the need for an integrated approach. Yeah. that caters for multi-modal transport. 
And basically that means infrastructure that seamlessly connects different forms of transportation. So can I walk from my house on a safe, well-maintained, well-lit footpath, get on the bus stop, you know, alight on my stop, get a dockless bike, get into a cycling lane, and then get to my destination. That's what we mean by an integrated system. And what we see is that many cities have prioritized car-oriented kind of development. It's highways before people, yeah. instead of building the cities around people. And you visit any major city, congestion is the order of the day, traffic jam. And of course, what has that done to our lives? We are spending so much time on traffic. That's a lot of man hours lost. You could be being more creative, engage in a hobby, spend more time with your kids, solve other global challenges. And sometimes we are just sitting in traffic. At the same time, the outdoor air pollution, you know that this is increasing our health issues. For example, asthma in children, the studies even showing that air pollution can even increase our risk of dementia. Still early studies, but it's worth looking at these connections even between how this kind of pollution affects our health, because then we begin to take these things a bit more personally, a bit more seriously. So of course, many people will be happy to walk, they'll be happy to cycle, if we provide the right kind of infrastructure that can cater for short trips and for that last mile connectivity. So globally, transport is accounting for almost 15% of the emissions. So of course, increasing walking and cycling infrastructure is a very good opportunity to be able to mitigate um, the climate crisis in the transport sector. And of course, even to improve our overall quality of life. Man is an upright creature, you know. So anytime we are cooked up in traffic, we are not in our natural setup. That's something we need to realize. And that's why we get really anxious being in traffic jams. We get very edgy because that shows you there's something that's happening that's not quite natural. So of course, it's important to note that walking and cycling are not solutions in and of themselves. They need also to be complemented by efficient public transport. How am I going to convince more people to stay away from their personal cars whenever they can. They need to feel that they have options, a good walk path, cycling paths, efficient public transport. So all these things work together so that we can be able to encourage more walking and cycling. And then one other thing that's really important, particularly in developing cities, is that more than half of the population actually walk to access yeah. basic needs and services. Mm. They're not using cars. Yeah. And the best that they can do is public transport when they can afford it. And most times they can't, so they'll walk. So yeah. increasing walking and cycling infrastructure is yeah. also a huge intervention in ensuring our cities are more equitable. Are we creating cities that cater to the masses? So being able to cater to the masses that walk through building adequate infrastructure that's safe is an amazing way also to ensure that we are having more equity in our cities i think that's beautiful um that the whole the equity um messaging because that's that's how it's, it's in, in cities all over the world where people can't afford to get on a bus even i can't afford a car yes. can't afford um to the train fare <laughs> um yes. you know particularly in the uk it's it's horrendous to get a 
to buy a train ticket uh, unless you're planning like weeks and weeks and weeks in advance you know if you want to go from one place to another it's very expensive yeah. even to jump on the train to get into London so being yeah. able to create cycle routes or alternative methods to to get in and and also to be able to walk around safely, I think mm. that is such a phenomenal message because it's okay saying, oh, well, you look, it's fine. You know, you can anywhere, you can walk anywhere. You can walk from your door to the, to the yeah. center of town. But if there's, if it's, especially as a woman, um, I, I think, and men as well, <laughs> uh, but you know, you're, you're, you're more vulnerable generally, True. you know, percentage wise that, um, we are you know if you're if you're walking in the dark area and there's not enough light and mm. um one of the things that i love about biophilic design is sort of biophilia the meat the word means love of life and it's also about how our, our interconnection with each other as well and it's with animals and birds mm. and nature and trees and everything like that and how our, our sort of symbiosis but it's also about our connection with other living things other other people and i think yeah. one of the wonderful things that that walking does as well um is and if and, and also using you know sort of uh, more um, eco-friendly if you want to say modes of transport is that it gets you speaking it gets you communicating with people it creates a a community you know you're going to work you might see the same people you might start yeah. friendships it's a very positive thing for us and I, I really like the fact that you said we're upright creatures we're upright <laughs> we're meant to be yeah. upright um so yes yeah, it's, it's um when you think about it and also with the cars sorry i'm because this is a big thing for me as well it's, it's sound pollution it's not it's just you know we've got yeah our lungs and all this but it's actually the sound it's the auditory impact that yeah. it has on us and we know it raises our stress levels and, and everything so yeah. Um, I do have to ask you, Edna, how is it being received? How is your sort of like <laughs> your messaging and your kind of like campaigning? How is it? How is it yeah. being received there? Well, the project we did around walking and cycling was very well received by the transport authorities because that's something that they've already been working on for a yeah. long time. So we must say that we've built on the work that others had already started and just to continue to make it better. So for us, it was really about driving more evidence-based decision-making to be able to support a network of walking and cycling infrastructure. So my conversation with Nairobians confirms that people want this walking and cycling infrastructure, more so beyond a few pockets of improvements, because yeah. that's what people are used to seeing. People are saying, we want a network. I want to be able to know that I can leave my home, walk all the way to the supermarket, or that my kids can walk safely to school, or if I need to access the dispensary, I could do it very quickly. Because, you know, transport shapes our lives. It's just not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. It affects where we want to live. It affects which school our kids can attend, which medical facilities we can get to, and many other things. And I love how you also brought in the aspect of even the gendered aspects towards transport. For example, you find that women tend to make more trips during the day because they are focusing on shopping for the household. Most of the time they are picking up their kids from school and dropping them. So they really interact even with transport systems more regularly. And yeah. they can tell you stories on how this has shaped their lives. Mm -hmm. So definitely we are seeing that there's quite good reception, both from the authorities, even the residents. And so now we need to focus on building that momentum and getting ourselves to the point where we have a network. 
Fantastic. And, and I'm going to have to ask because I have to balance it out. <laughs> what are the challenges? <laughs> yes, yes. Challenges always there. And the good thing is that when you, once you know the challenges, then you can be able to address them effectively. I would say one of the challenges is consistent and adequate budgetary allocations. These things cost money, Vanessa. Building and maintaining walking and cycling paths is expensive. Yeah. And this infrastructure must be prioritized. So, of course, transport being a shared function between national government and subnational government, we have to have that deliberate allocation towards walking and cycling facilities. We are seeing quite a lot of improvement in this, even in terms of the policy framework, mentioning the importance of walking and cycling infrastructure, because this is the entry point to then have minimum budgetary allocations. So this is a place where we are seeing the role also of policy and regulations in legitimizing the walking and cycling agenda. Secondly, I would also say coordination between various government institutions. You know, transport is a very tricky sector worldwide. Actually, transport projects attract the highest political capital in any part of the world, yes. Every politician wants to be seen having commissioned a road, a bridge. You know, it's visible. Yeah. It's a lot, a lot of money, time, jobs could be created even through transport infrastructure. So yeah. it's a very tricky area as well. And of course, it being a shared function between national government, subnational government, there is need for coordination. Of course, we need to synergize and at the end of the day, look at the transport system as one system and not roads belonging to the national government, roads belonging to the city government. No, this is roads for people, to serve people, infrastructure to make our lives better. So there's that need to have more coordination between various government institutions. And finally, I would say citizen education and awareness. This for me should be an ongoing process to ensure that we're in a constant motion of educating the masses on their right to safe walking and cycling facilities. Most of the time, we don't even know that we have a right to these kind of facilities. You know, once we see a bit of tarmac, we feel that that should be enough. No, we should be able to know that our governments should be able to provide for us adequate transport infrastructure, different forms of mobility to cater to our needs, and also we need to keep on educating the masses on the benefits of decongesting our cities. You know, you talked about the connection between health and transport, whether it's noise pollution, whether it's air pollution. The moment people begin to appreciate this as a personal concern, it changes the game. Because now we have many advocates on the ground saying we know the benefit of this infrastructure. And we also want to safeguard it one of the challenges we face is encroachment of walking and cycling facilities. For example, you will find street vendors on walking paths. And yes, they are addressing a need. There's a reason why the street vendor is there because there's a population that wants to access that service. So that is something we should also address. We should be able to have that in our minds when designing this infrastructure. Yeah. Could we have a place for street vendors at the end of the curb in a way that does not 
approach on the facility and allows for seamless walking. So these are some of the things that we need uh, to address when it comes to education and awareness. And also we have encroachment by motorcycles and some of the public buses stopping at walk paths. So this kind of education, when we educate the citizens, you will find the citizens themselves saying, no, this is not right. Don't park here. Don't, don't, don't let me alight here. This is a walking path. This is a cycling path. So that will be better, um, it, it, or rather it will contribute to better enforcement. Of course, we also have more stringent regulations right now on enforcement. It attracts certain fines. And we need multiple ways of getting ourselves um, to use this infrastructure for the money it was designed. Yeah, I think I think that's great. Say so educating, educating people, and also I mean, like you're saying about the the street vendors, but actually creating a space for them. Because if you know yeah. there's going to be a need, you know they're going to do it. You can yeah. yeah, you can find them all day long. But actually, if there is a need there, then why not create a space for them? So then it's seamless, and they they get an income, and um, everybody you know gets their water or whatever it is that they need when they're when they're having a walk yeah. or they um what role do you think cities should play in, in mitigating climate crisis i mean this is kind of a massive question um yeah. but um you know what what do you think that they should you know what role should they play you know this is something that has gotten me to just explore how cities are very central to mm. climate action that's yeah. because vanessa cities are currently home to 55 percent of the world's population yeah. And by 2050, we are saying 80% of people in the world will live in a city. So it means that cities will be closest to the people. Cities can, one, engage more inclusively with the needs on the ground, because that will be home to the majority of people. So cities must play this leading role in addressing climate change in all sectors. Now, for example, in the built environment, we should incorporate nature as much as possible. For instance, we are having vertical gardens. This is a very innovative way even to improve the aesthetics of yeah. all the concrete we have in buildings, but also these are air purifiers. You know, I've been reading about some interesting plants and some of them are everywhere. They are so versatile, like the spider plant. Probably you've seen it. It yeah. grows as a ground cover. You can just get a cutting, put it in a pot and there it is, it's growing. Yeah. Apparently it's, such a good air purifier and yeah. these are just the small ways that we can make a difference in terms of even improving our built environment using nature mm -hmm. and then we can also opt for more sustainable building materials there's lots of technology right now going on it's still in early stages but these are the solutions we need to explore people are talking about low carbon cement low carbon steel and concrete what does that mean? This means that cities can develop more sustainably, particularly even in developing countries, I see opportunity because we have not built up our environment fully yet. There's an opportunity to do it in a sustainable way. There's also an opportunity to incorporate recycled materials and to reuse materials whenever we can and to make the built environment as environmentally friendly as we can. Of course, the transport sector as well. We can play a role in mitigating the climate crisis in cities by investing in more walking and cycling, more efficient public transport to encourage less use of personal cars whenever we can. And of course, now we are talking about greening the public transport sector, talking about electric vehicle, electric buses, 
electric bus rapid transit. So this is the opportunity for cities now to explore these kind of ways of addressing the climate crisis. That's brilliant. Uh, how do you, you talk about vertical gardens? What do you think about, have you read about the, you know, the roof gardens? And and I and I love this. We're talking about food security and the fact that you can grow food on the roof. And obviously that encourages your office workers to go up there to be a community space as well. And solar yeah. panels. And then that kind of creates sort of like moisture and shade for different plants. I just I've been I just like that's a whole new thing that I think is just such a wonderful thing. Is is it is that being implemented in, in Nairobi? Do you know or how you how do, how do you feel about it? Well, I can tell you, everybody in Nairobi tries to have a kitchen garden wherever they can. So for yeah. us, that has always been a culture. If you don't have the ground to do it, people will put vegetables in a sack. It's a culture. Yeah. I can't think of anyone who didn't grow up and there were a few greens in their backyard. Of course, right now, having more and more people living in apartments, there's a sense that people feel they can't do that. But these are the innovative ways that we can remind people that nature is so resilient. I've seen people grow Vanessa potatoes in mm -hmm. pots yeah. in their apartments. And I'm like, wow, potatoes, you've taken it a notch higher. But yeah. sometimes it's even less about the food security angle because maybe you're not producing so much for subsistence. But it's that idea that this is mine. I can watch something grow. I can nurture it. You feel closer to nature and you have that greater appreciation even for those of us who produce food for others, then you begin to look at them with a different eye because you've gone through the process of nurturing a tomato for three months. <laughs> so definitely it, it creates more appreciation, you know, for the food producers, even within our communities. But on a different scale, there's quite a number of cities engaging in urban farming, okay. taking some public spaces and engaging in urban farming. And yes, these are going a long way, particularly in underserved communities, ensuring that they can access some form of greens and just improving their nutrition. So these are excellent ways as well of mitigating the climate crisis because a lot of cities tend to get their food from rural areas. And that means the food has such high food miles, we call them food miles because the food is being transported for so long to get to where it is, not to mention losing nutrition along the way. Yeah. So these are ways now of not only encouraging more environmentally friendly ways of producing food, but more nutrition to communities. And as you said, that idea of bringing people together, that is critical. That idea of building a community. I think these are things that we cannot take for granted, even as we talk about addressing climate action. Let it be about people. Yeah, absolutely. That's lovely, isn't it? Yeah, biophilia, right, right to the core. <laughs> um, how do you feel about bringing in uh, trees um, and plant? Well, obviously we're talking about planting, but what do you what do you personally feel about it? You know, and and um, yeah, and if you got if you if you've got an example of where they maybe have put mm. some trees in, um, which has made made a difference. Well, Vanessa, what we are seeing is that so many cities have replaced natural cover yeah. with pavements, with buildings yeah. and other surfaces that actually retain heat. And this creates what we call an urban heat island effect, which simply means that the cities tend now to be significantly warmer than rural areas or more peri-urban areas due to human activities. So trees can play a critical role 
in cooling down our cities, regulating temperatures, and even reducing our energy costs because now we can spend less from air conditioning. Now that we are facing sweltering summers, what if we have boulevards wherever we can, you know, as many trees as we can, as many vertical gardens, that means you'll be switching on your air conditioning less and less. So for me, I feel that trees can never grow old. They can never run out of style. And of course, certain trees are more suited to certain areas. So for example, particularly close to road net networks would avoid trees with very deep root systems because this could end up also affecting the infrastructure, causing cracks, but there's lots of other trees that have more shallow root systems, certain palm trees, for example, that have shallow root systems, they're resilient, that could be grown along transport infrastructure. So there's so many ways that we can incorporate trees in cities. That's, that's wonderful. I was thinking as well, um, just you saying about palm trees, People over here in the UK will be going like palm trees, but it's we 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 think about um, and we I you know I talked to um, uh, um, a guy called James Godfrey Fawcett, and he talks he talks about the Miyawaki method over here, where we like a Japanese kind of method of closely planting lots of trees. It's because this 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 chap in Japan called Miyawaki basically observed what happened in nature and says, well, hang on, you get all these plant, all these trees and you have all the seeds on them, and they grow really dense. And then as they grow, the little ones kind of fall away and then the big one and then they, but it but it's 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 um but it's using indigenous plants. That's the important thing. And you know there's 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 certain um designers that might go, oh actually no I want to bring in trees from here and I want to bring in trees from there. But there's actually a really good, like you just mentioned, when you said it, I was just like, that's really hammered home how important it is to use also local indigenous plants because they're mm. resilient to the climate that's there. They're adapted to, you know, to the climate that's there. And there's no reason, you yes. know, we, we're trying to force things. We try and make things that don't work. Yes, yes, <laughs> you know? it's true. And there's always something that works in a particular area. Yeah. You know, that's what fascinates me about nature. For example, we have maybe the palm tree in more tropical climates, but yeah. those who are in other temperate climates have their own trees that do yeah. well there. So there's always a solution, even when it comes to food. For example, now we have superfoods. Everybody's yeah. excited about chia. Everybody's excited about salmon and avocados. But when you look at it critically, wherever you come from, yeah. you can get your needs from the nature around you. Yeah. That's how smart nature is. That wherever we come from, we can be able to source all our dietary needs by and large from what's around us. And that should encourage us to have more you know, local food systems to dig deeper into what we already have and build on that. And I think biophilia is a great way of bringing us back to nature that's lovely that's wonderful thank you um so before i ask you the final question i mean there's lots of questions i want to ask you but i've only got you for a short time <laughs> um if, so the final so is there anything else you'd like to add well apart from saying that i think your podcast is amazing and you're doing a wonderful job in bringing a lot of different conversations in a way that speaks to people in a simple way that others can understand and appreciate what the end game is. And the end game is to make 
it about people, is to make us closer to nature and to help us to live more harmoniously with nature and to appreciate its benefits as well. So thank you for the work you're doing. Oh, bless you. Thank you for saying that. That's really lovely. Um, uh, take the wind out of my sails now. <laughs> thank you for that. Um, so my final question, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what you say um, in answer to this. If you could paint the world with a magic brush of biophilia, what would it look like? Oh, oh I don't want to be greedy. So I'll say lots of boulevards. I just imagine trees on both ends of the streets, hanging flowers and a very minimalistic approach to the built environment. And because I love to run, I definitely sneak in beautiful jogging tracks, you know, all covered in greenery. So that would be what I'd do with my magic brush. Thank you for listening to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast.